There is an area so unfathomably large, humans refer to it simply as space. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. So Jamie, I've no idea where that quote's from. Don't ask me. No, uh, I won't, I- Matt. But more importantly, Matt... Yeah? How was your trip? My trip was absolutely amazing. I was Basically, I've been recovering ever since because I was very tired on the way back because I did not sleep at all for one whole night. So, Matt, <laughs> for new listeners, mm-hmm. uh, can you just give us a brief summary of where you've been and why? Okay, so, yeah, I went to French Guiana, which is the European spaceport, essentially, or it's known as the CSG to those people that... Uh, are in the know that's uh, yeah. le centre spatial guyanese or the guiana space center beautiful yeah so yeah i've been, I've been out in the jungle uh in the caribbean did you see any exotic animals there were quite a few exotic birds apparently there's normally capybaras and and things like that i saw some brilliant spiders yeah. we went for a walk in the jungle to, so that we could see the spaceport from a from a hill and uh, yeah. in this viewing point, there was loads of massive spiders. So that was that was quite cool. Ooh. Yeah, and that was good. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I've had a, an absolutely amazing time hanging out with uh, none other than Eric Berger, which was which was amazing. I mean, imagine that. Two people, one of the greatest space journalists of all time, and Eric Berger standing there with a drink. Hey! <laughs> right, so... <laughs> Matt, how long did it take you to write that? <laughs> Oh, no, I was thinking about it last night. I was thinking, I'll, I'll get Jamie with that one. It's a, I was it's thinking, a, yeah, it's, I'll drop that, drop that it's, clanger. It's, Brilliant. It's a, it's a total have-I-got-news-for-you joke, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Matt, you're, 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 you're completely on the ball. You're, you're, you're not jet-lagged anymore. No, this no. is good times. No, no, absolutely. Do you know what? So when we landed, one of the co- you know that it's cool because there was, a, there was an enormous Antonov 124 aircraft and and that's how Oof. most of the satellites arrive. So it's one of those aircraft that you can fit an aircraft in. <laughs> so yeah, if you have huge. to transport the fuselage of a seven four seven, you stick it in one of those things. Awesome. The the kind of airport itself is very space themed. So there's loads of model rockets and everything there. Yeah, lots of lots of amazing birds flying around. It was incredible. It was absolutely. Genius. Wow. Well, Matt, I'm glad you had a good time. We're going to go into this more later, aren't yeah, we? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Big time. Remember the. Uh, Space word oh, of the week. Yeah. I haven't got one this week. Yeah, but remember what Aphelion meant. Uh, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, our planet's getting. Our planet is the furthest distance away from the sun during its elliptical orbit, even though us in the northern hemisphere are experiencing hot summer weather. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that incredible? So I'm literally sitting here sweating <laughs> because it's so hot in London, but we are actually the furthest away from the sun that we will be all year. Incredible. So we're at Aphelion, the furthest away point from the sun. You there know what, Matt? If Alanis Morissette was here, she'd say it was ironic. But she would be wrong. It's not irony. It's science. No, it's it's science, Alanis. Science. Uh, well, no, I'm sitting here in a Belgium hotel room. Because uh, oh, wow. last night I was working with the mighty queens of the Stone Age at Rock Virtue Festival. Oh, nice. Which I have to say, Matt, is very good. Have queens of the Stone Age ever done a space-based song? Well, Matt, they. do you know what? They played last night, My God is the Sun. Oh, there we go. Um, so, done. Tick. I wonder if they even realised that they were the furthest distance away from it than they'd ever been. Well, Matt, as I was watching them play last night, Mm -hmm. I was looking up in the sky and I could see Jupiter just shining brightly over the stage. And I thought, yeah, this is a good day. That is cool. What a planet, eh? What a planet. What a planet. Let's go round the planet and do a bit of space news. So uh, I noticed in China... The chief designer of the Chinese Academy of Launch Vehicles, which, mm. which, which I know you know is is CALT, yeah, yeah. Uh, is a guy called Long Lihao. Now, mm-hmm. isn't it crazy that his first name is the same as that of a rocket? Yeah. <laughs> so he's been talking about the Long March 8 and 9 rockets that, that, that they're building. So th- these Ooh. are actually really cool. So we've talked about the Long March 8 uh, briefly before. 
uh, and that's going to start flying in 2021 apparently and, and it's going to have the first stage and the boosters will attempt vertical landings just like Ooh. just like the falcon so that's going to be excellent news well be... it was always going to go that way yeah, well, and the Long March 9, which they think will take off in about 2030, that is your kind of Saturn V SLS BFR-sized rocket, 140 tonnes to low-Earth mm. orbit. So, yeah, that's going to be that's going to be huge. 10-metre diameter compared to the 3.35 diameter of the Long March 7. So, mm. yeah, that's massive, and it's using some uh, engines that they've been working on, the Hydrolox and Kerosene engines. Mm. That'll be used for things like uh, sample return missions to the moon, possibly to carry people up into low Earth orbit and do lots of uh, uh, in sort of human missions. So, yeah, it'll be pretty cool. I might apply to that one, Matt, just like I did Virgin Galactic. <laughs> I wonder if they'll reply to me. Um, probably not. Dear Mr. Longley Howe, my name's Jamie from the Interplanetary Podcast. Would you like me to work for you on your rockets? Yes, no. And I could put those boxes that you tick. Hmm. Well, it, it, uh, you know? it's something that people don't really know about, is that the European astronauts, some of the European astronauts, have been actually training to uh, go up with the Chinese to the Chinese space station. We, we reported that a few weeks ago about how the Chinese are opening up their space station. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the Europe, some of the European astronauts have been training to do that. And, of course, the American astronauts miss out on it because the Americans refuse to work with the Chinese. Which is a shame, Matt, because, as we know, in space, there shouldn't be the same politics, should there? Well, one of the best things about the European Space Centre was just how many countries are involved and mm. how well they all get on together and 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 how this place works perfectly like 1700 employees yeah. and they're all and they're all from yeah, different different european nations all just getting on and making things happen it's incredible but anyway we'll hear about that in it's an inter- really in, on another show because i've got some interviews from that visit as well so oh we'll, yeah we'll, sweet well matt yeah here's a question for you mm-hmm. What's going on in India? Ooh, so we're moving slightly around the world here. Uh, India, uh, they've been testing their... I'm talking about crew. They've been testing their um, uh, launch escape system, the pad abort test. So, so yeah, they're sort of inching towards uh, joining China, Russia and uh, America in being the only people capable of getting people into space. So this is the safe recovery of crew modules yeah and it was it looks like it was really successful 259 seconds and it flew 2.7 kilometers under the power of the escape motors 300 sensors making sure that that the module didn't go and exceed the sort of safe g levels because there's no point flinging your crew out of the way of your blowing up rocket if it means that they all die from the g forces from the the, yeah, the abort. that would be counterproductive. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's what's been happening in uh, in in Indian space, which I think a, that's a pretty big one, isn't it? That one. Well, Matt, talking a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, we're only playing Sweden in the quarter final of the World Cup. Matt, don't adjust your set. I said quarter final of the World Cup. Yep. Oh, this Saturday. Oh my God, I only barely lived through those penalties. I haven't. Oh. I honestly think I I aged about twenty years. <laughs> I know. Well, I've, uh, I saw a, a picture of you the other day, and you looked. You know, in episodes of Star Trek, where don't where, say I, I looked sixty. <laughs> you know, in episodes of Star Trek, where they all age really quickly and things like that, and they've got that makeup on. Yeah, it was like that. That's what you look like. Oh, uh, oh, thanks. Uh, but no, you've. Think... But uh, it's like in Star Trek, they all went back down to their young age again. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, so you're all oh, right. Thank you're goodness. all right. You're all right. Well, Matt, the reason I brought the football up mm-hmm. is because uh, it's going to be played that game mm-hmm. in a formerly closed city of Samara. I know. I know. That's actually really exciting. So for any football fans listening, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that maybe football fans and space fans, yeah. there, is a, there is some crossing over on the Venn diagram. There must well, be there must few. be. Well, there's us two. Well, there's two, yeah. Um, um, but, yeah, so it used to be known as Koibushev, uh, the city of Samara, after, after hmm. the Bolshevik leader, Valerian 
Koibyshev. So, mm. um, yeah. And it's, of course, where Vostok was made, which is where you... Basically, the first manned spaceship by Yuri, mm. with Yuri Gagarin in it. So... That's pretty cool, yeah. isn't it? And Yuri Gagarin Very actually cool. stayed in Samara when he uh, had finished his first orbital flight. And mm-hmm. uh, the Progress Rocket Space Center is there as well. So all the things like the Soyuz rocket, uh, the Buran Space Shuttle. There's, a, there's even a monument to the Buran Space Shuttle next to the Airspace University. But There is. I'm staring at it right now. It's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah that, well, it's interesting. Yeah, well, and the, the the craziest one is the sixty-eight meter full size Soyuz monument that's kind of hanging mm. off the side of the building. So that's absolutely yeah. enormous, sixty-eight meter monument. So it's big. Yeah, uh, it was very much a kind of military base, which is why it became a, a sort of closed city. So there we go. A little bit of trivia for you when. Uh for when we beat Sweden on so Saturday. So definitely look out for all the rocket stuff when you're when any any um, football fans who are going out there. Um, Russia have actually been quite busy as well. So the old new, the new boss, the Rogozin, Rogozin, mm. he's uh, he's clearly stamping his mark as well. We've got um, mm. Vladimir Sultsev, the head of RSC Energia, is stepping down from his post uh, with no uh, reason. Um, and the rocket maker RCC Progress have a new leader. Um, oh. Yeah, Dmitry Alexandrovich Baranov. Welcome. <laughs> who's been acting as general director and replaces R.N. Arkhamatov. So, uh, yeah, so, mm. so it seems like there's a lot of shake-up going in the Russian space industry. It does. Mm. Well, sometimes it's good to have a shake-up. Yeah. Uh, one last piece of UK news we've managed to come... Oh, I'm excited about ...all this. the way west over to the UK. So, yeah, the, uh, I noticed that uh, Doug Messier was reporting on Parabolic Arc that Cornwall Council are anticipating a positive announcement on their bid to become Ooh. UK's first spaceport in Newquay. Um, so rad. Yeah, and that's going to be announced at the Farnborough Air Show on July the 16th. Are you uh, are you going to the Farnborough Air Show, Jamie? Yeah, I think we're going. Yeah, 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 we? we're going. So we, you're, you're coming to that. So you're coming to the Farnborough Air Show. Yeah. Uh, as might, as might uh, Julio as well. Oh, yes. It looks like Nuki have taken over. Uh, uh, but uh, this is a warning that comes from Doug Mezzier's website, and I, and I love this. <laughs> he, uh, he says, yeah, don't get too excited about having a spaceport. And then he goes on to list what's going on. So he goes, in the Mojave spaceport, hasn't seen a space flight in 14 years. Apart from small rocket launches, Spaceport America has stayed largely idle. Uh, and you don't need $225 million to build a sounding rocket launch site. <laughs> the Midland Spaceport no. uh, expired when Xcor and Orbital Outfitters did. Burn Flat in Oklahoma never saw a launch, and Florida's Cecil Airport is still waiting for its first space flight. So there you go. Yeah, thanks, Doug, for the downer. <laughs> it, it's, not a, it's not a good scene, is it? There's us thinking that we're going to go surfing and watching horizontal space launches. And there's old Doug giving it the thumbs down. Absolutely. Um, But fair play to him. He's got a point. uh, Jamie, I'm going to talk to you only a little bit about uh, my trip to um, French Guiana. Just very, very briefly. The reason why I was there, of course, was to see uh, the new Ariane 6 and Vega C kind of infrastructure. And part of that was going to be uh, the test of the P120C, which is a massive solid rocket booster. In fact, it's the largest monolithic booster ever made. And by monolithic, it means that it's in one piece. So when you look at something like the... Mm. Ariane 5, the boosters on the Ariane 5 are actually three boosters uh, three boosters stacked on top of one another. So they're, they're built in three parts, basically, S1, S2, and S3, yes. um, which uh-huh. actually is really – it's amazingly how complicated that is. And to actually sort of attach them to one another, the accuracy is 
is just totally ridiculous. It's something like 0.01 millimeters or something ridiculous. It has, yeah. it, 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 it's so, insane. So it's, it's got to be absolutely perfect. So the monolithic one doesn't need to kind of, it's just one part. And the clever thing about the P120C solid rocket booster is that it's a, the, the C actually in Vega C and P120C, I think stands for common. So it means that the Vegasy first stage is this solid rocket booster, but Ariane 6 boosters that are attached to it, so there's either two or four on the Ariane 6, are this P120C as well. So that way they can really just make loads of these things and use them for different purposes. So there's, there's a massive cost saving there. So that, that I think right. so that's the really clever clever part of it. Vegasy gets a, a a huge kind of payload lift, so that it, it can it yeah. can carry more more stuff into space. And Ariane six is half the price of Ariane five, and you can double the amount of Ariane sixes you can launch in one year. So it's a significant upgrade, and they're quite a long way to a finishing. Uh, I went round the. The Vega, the Vega uh, mobile launch gantry that has got some these extra red circles in the in the in the gantries that come down to so that you can get to the rocket. They've been extended to to house the slightly larger Vega C. So they've already kind of um, allowed for the Vega C and the Ariane six, the mobile gantry that's being built for that. That's almost. You know, you can see that that's almost finished, and they've almost finished the launch pad. So it's right. pretty incredible. But get this: so the mobile gantry for Ariane Six is is it moves around. So it's one of those enormous buildings that's on rails essentially, and yeah. um, it's the same weight as the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yet it moves around. Say what? Uh, yet it moves around on rails. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Damn. Yeah, it's mad. That's. That's heavy. Yeah, it's 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 bang out heavy. So it was a Matt. I hope you had a hard hat on. I mean, if that fell on you, I'd be devastated. Oh, I did have a hard hat on. We we all had hard hats on. Good. Yeah. So it was. Uh, yeah, as you'll see in the pictures, I'll 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 I've been posting pictures up, of course, on our Instagram. But yeah, we'll do a we'll do a proper report on this because uh, we're running out of time here, Jamie. Because I'm now going to play you. We are the the, the much anticipated part two. Part of Alan Bond interview. I didn't want to play it this soon. I was going to do the interview we did with the Mars 500 chap, uh, but everyone has been kind of hassling me for part two, so I thought, no. Well, and I've been hassling you, Matt, but you said, no, you're going to wait like the listeners, so (laughs) I'm excited. Let's go. Absolutely. So here is the second, probably even more interesting, part two of the Alan Bond interview. Roll that ish. So in 1989, the, the three of us, Richard Varville, Richard John Scott Scott and myself, formed Reaction Engines. And Rolls-Royce uh, decided that they didn't want the patents uh, on the loose for the RB54 engine. And I'd already entered an agreement with them that they could take the patents on. And uh, they closed on that agreement and essentially took the patents, locked them away with absolutely no intention of doing anything with them. And so Reaction Engines uh, would have been faced as a company with no product. However, I've already hinted that the thermodynamics of these engines is incredibly subtle. And although when I wrote the patents for the hotel engine, it was intended that nobody should be able to infringe them, I then had the interesting task of trying to infringe my own patents. (laughs) And uh, surprise, surprise, other thermodynamic issues came to light and I found that that was possible. And so the Sabre engines were born, which uh, whilst if you draw yourself a, a temperature entropy diagram of these engines, uh, the engines look very similar. The actual engineering, which is what patents are all about, uh, is very, very different. And the Sabre engine was very different from the RB545 engine. Uh, first off, uh, most importantly, is that the pre-cooler, which calls the incoming air into an RB545 engine uses the hydrogen as the coolant. And uh, that has both thermodynamic and material implications. And to some people, although not to me, uh, perceived safety issues in the event of a catastrophic pre-cooler failure, um, that would dump uh, hot hydrogen straight into the intake of the engine. 
and some people saw that as a, a, a risk. I must admit that particular aspect never actually, never actually bothered me. However, in the Sabre engines, helium is used and that's got both thermodynamic implications and uh, material implications. So high temperature materials temp tend to be embrittled by hydrogen and uh, helium, of course, is completely benign. So we can use some of the best nickel alloys that you know, are readily available to make the pre-cooler out of. And so that immediately was a step forward. But the use of helium uh, within the cycle also enables uh, some subtleties in the thermodynamics. It's, it's not easy to go into them just uh, describing it, um, but uh, enables the efficiencies uh, to start to approach the thermodynamic uh, ideal efficiencies. Whereas uh, with liquid hydrogen, which is already at sort of 20 Kelvin, um, you, when, you get, when you get it out of the propellant tanks, you've got limitations, thermodynamic limitations forced upon you by that, together with the, uh, I've already mentioned, varying specific heat problems mm. of uh, hydrogen, which don't exist uh, with helium, or at least to nowhere near the same extent. So the Sabre engines were born, and uh, beginning of uh, uh, the 1990s, uh, Rolls-Royce, having acquired the, my patent, which they paid me handsomely for, all that money then got sunk back into reaction engines to actually uh, fund the activity of trying to get the Sabre engine and also the Skylon vehicle. So just coming back to, to Hotel for a minute, I explained that Hotel developed this horrendous pitch-up moment at Mach 5. And we had an opportunity uh, as reaction engines, the three of us, to have a look at why that had occurred. And it had occurred because if you have a look at a picture of Hotel, you'll see the engines are stuck right on the rear of the fuselage. And the reason for that is we, all the people that did it had come from a rocket background, <laughs> yeah. of course. Where are the engines on a rocket? Well, they're on the back. If you have a look at any typical aeroplane, they're not. Uh, they're on wings or whatever. Um, and you can move the centre of gravity of the aircraft around by positioning the wing and where you hang the engines on it. So we made that move uh, with Skylon. And if you look at Skylon, you'll see that the biggest configuration change comes from putting the engines out on the wingtips. Now, it's unfortunate it makes it look a bit like some of the 1920s and 30s Herman O'Berth sort of concepts. Mm. Um, but the reality is that that gives absolute control then over the pitch-up moment. And so in one fell swoop, we solve the pitch-up problem on HOTEL. And then due to another uh, range of uh, innovations like changing how the structure was done and so on, we finished up in Skylon with something that was very, very credible as a single stage to orbit vehicle. And whereas HOTEL, we'd always been struggling uh, to get payload. One of, one of the reasons being because of the pitch-up moment, we had to have massive flaperons with a massive hydraulic system to drive it. And in the end, HOTEL uh, was carrying four and a half tonnes of hydraulics into orbit. It had become a transportation system for hydraulics into low Earth orbit. <laughs> um, as soon as we solved the pitch-up problem, that was immediately uh, four tons uh, to our favour. Uh, the other thing with HOTEL is that with uh, uh, HOTEL, you've got to remember it was all new to us. And so we didn't know how to optimise the engines, the air intake, the shape of the vehicle and uh, the trajectory profile in order to maximise the payload to orbit. We set about in the early 1990s to resolve those issues. And what came out of it amazingly is that the engine is not demanding a high performance intake. Now that's unknown to jet engines. Jet engines always want the best intake they can get. Mm. Whereas the Sabre engine wants the intake that optimizes its performance on the trajectory as it's climbing to orbit. And one of the problems which uh, one of the Germans when we were sort of scouting for people to join us uh, alluded to was that we don't know how to make an intake that bad. And uh, <laughs> we thought that that was just a joke, but it did come home to bite us. It is, in fact, quite difficult to make an intake down at the efficiencies that the engine's asking for and keep it stable. 
because obviously an inefficient intake has got loss mechanisms inside it. And if you get that wrong, those loss mechanisms drive instabilities. So, <clears throat> so that came home to bite us. But eventually we did solve all of those issues and uh, reaction engines today has basically got uh, functioning designs uh, for the Sabre engine and for the uh, Skylon vehicle. Um, but again, politics is driving the current reaction engines in a direction that means that they will be looking for terrestrial applications of the technology uh, before they're looking for the uh, space plane applications. So it's going to be dragged out before this technology actually finds its way into a uh, fully serviceable operating space plane. Um, somewhere beyond the uh, 2030s, uh, maybe. But I'm quite convinced that uh, nothing has ever changed my view right from the 1960s, that uh, there is a desperate need for such a vehicle, and that that need will, will get more and more acute as, as time goes on. So uh, where we stand today is that uh, all of those technologies are extant, reaction engines is... Uh, getting uh, ready for a major demonstration of an engine uh, around about 2020. They're building a uh, large test facility, the largest test facility that's been built in this country for many decades at uh, Westcott, on the old uh, Westcott site, which is a, a nice little bit of historical closure. And uh, with luck, uh, they'll demonstrate the technology and then maybe somebody will decide that it would be a good idea if they put it into uh, practice. Yeah. Because I, I do sincerely believe that that will completely change uh, the complexion of uh, space transportation. Now, like the Americans with the early shuttle concept, <clears throat> this is only the getting into orbit bit. Mm. So uh, come back, Mr. Von Perke, because uh, we need a space infrastructure to go with it. And the only thing that we ever really looked at was... Uh, um, very, very briefly, what we called a logistical space infrastructure. And that consists of uh, vehicles operating in resonant orbits so that they can uh, uh, transfer and uh, uh, deploy propellants strategically and use them to fill the whole of cislunar space with completely reusable vehicles, um, which can... Uh, uh, find propellants in orbit and then go on to complete other aspects of the mission. And it turns out that if you do get a Skylon uh, fleet, 60% um, of its traffic to orbit is propellants uh, for uh, the upper stages and the uh, space operating elements. So one can see uh, a whole network of space, what I preferred to think of transport nodes, but you know, is good old-fashioned space stations in uh, uh, science fiction parlance um, and at the at the transport nodes payloads are moved from vehicle to vehicle and the vehicles are refueled and complete the space infrastructure part of it and indeed that is such a powerful concept that uh, the ultimate expression of that that we studied at reaction engines back in 2006 was the Troy project which was a mission to Mars uh, but done uh, essentially logistically in which uh, a precursor mission uh, reaches Mars first, automatically sets up uh, bases on the surface and uh, um, emergency return facilities and so on in orbit. And then two years later at the next uh, uh, suitable configuration, um, the uh, manned mission goes. But we looked at it with uh, <clears throat> a Columbus mission with three ships and... Uh, um, six people in uh, each vehicle. So that, that was the last of the interplanetary missions that uh, I was actively involved in. And uh, that all looks as though Skylon would enable that and bring the costs you know, well, well, well down. Yeah. Even so, even with the most optimistic costs I could put into Skylon, you're still talking at... Uh, more at today's numbers uh, in, 90, in in 2006 numbers about 70 to 100 billion dollars for a uh, uh, first manned exploratory mission to Mars but it would be with 18 people so and that's not far short if you total up all the missions that have been flown to Mars 
at the present time, you know, with uh, the very limited understanding that we have of Mars, that is approximately a yeah. sum of similar order that's already been spent uh, to have a few rovers sort of pottering around on the surface and returning data which is ambiguous, to say the least, in a lot of uh, yeah. instances. I've always maintained that uh, an astronaut with a spade would learn more in the first day on Mars than all of the stuff that we've sent there so far. Yeah. One of the things that happened in all this time uh, is I got old. And so uh, last year, uh, around about my uh, 73rd birthday, uh, I decided that it was time for me to retire. Reaction Engine had grown to an, 160 people uh, from the three of us who founded it. Um, we brought in... Uh, uh, a chief engineer from Rolls-Royce to take over the uh, chief executive role in the company. And uh, he has uh, turned reaction engines from a, a funny little research outfit into a company that looks uh, more like a mainstream aerospace uh, uh, company. And of course that was essential if reaction engines is going to be accepted uh, by the major aerospace companies. So Mark Thomas has done a, a good job of uh, sort of reshaping the company. It's been very painful for you know, quite a lot of the original uh, inhabitants of the company to make that transition. But uh, I think that uh, it's now settling down and uh, Reaction Engines, I think, has got a bright and assured future uh, from that point of view. So what about my own interests uh, as of uh, that point in time? I'm still regarded as having something useful to say at Reaction Engines, so I, I go in there uh, about 30 days uh, a year, and I'm coming up to between uh, the end of the first year that uh, I've been in this novel situation of uh, being retired. Um, <clears throat> but I've left out uh, some interesting issues, which uh, is perhaps appropriate for me to cover now. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, far away. So going back to 1978 and my work with Tony Martin at the Atomic Energy Authority, um, as I've explained, I took over the engineering of the so-called Magnets and Structures group of the Engineering Design Division. <clears throat> and I, uh, I realised that uh, if you've got uh, a simple circular magnet and you put a couple of electrodes across a diameter, and then if you could ionise the air around it, which is very difficult to do at sea level, but nonetheless, you know, let's assume that you could do it, then you'd have a very different kind of vehicle because by passing a current across the magnetic field, it ejects the air in one direction and pushes the vehicle in the other. And so this is a vehicle essentially which is a fully electric aeroplane with no uh, moving parts other than what is providing the electrical power. Come back to that in a moment. So... Tony Martin and myself thought, well, that looks interesting, wonder if it works. So uh, I think it was B&Q we went round to and uh, <laughs> uh, bought a, a large loft tank and uh, stopped at Tesco's on the way to get some salt. And uh, we filled the tank with 50 gallons of salt water. Um, I uh, wound up a field coil with the help of my wife. Uh, I was married in those days. And uh, um, Tony borrowed a power supply and we juiced it up at the Cullum Lab and watched it take off across the tank in a very satisfying manner. <laughs> and uh, the Star Wars film was out around at those days, and it looked for all the world like the Millennium Falcon <laughs> as it uh, shot across the tank, leaving a, a trail of green bubbles from one electrode and white bubbles from the other. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, over the subsequent sort of four years, up to 1982, when Hotel took over my life, the problem that we never managed to solve at that stage was to uh, ionise the air effectively. Had lots of ideas of how to do it, but uh, um, we only carried out a few actual experiments. Um, but, but they weren't very successful. Anyway, when it came up to a concept of retirement last year, I sort of thought, what am I going to do? Well, this was always a very exciting uh, possibility of uh, building. I mean, it looks for all the world like a flying saucer. It's a, it's a circular coil. It's circular because of the very high stresses in it. Of course, you need a relatively powerful magnetic field uh, to limit the amount of electric current you uh, have to pass um, and therefore the conductivity to produce a thrust. So... Uh, I, I unearthed this and went back to looking at the uh, issues of uh, ionisation. 
Now, I think I've made some progress uh, with that. And so in December, uh, back end of 2017, um, I... Uh, uh, started a new company uh, called Meriquark Limited for fairly complex reasons. <laughs> and um, I've been working on that uh, ever since. And I'm now in the process of trying to uh, uh, snare some unsuspecting people <laughs> into it right. in order to uh, start to get some experimental work carried out. And at the moment, that's right in the uh, stages of uh, dialogue. So I, I don't feel that I can disclose much yeah. about that. The Miroquois end of it, which is simply me and my company, I don't mind talking about that, but I can't talk about the third parties at yeah. this point in time. But um, alongside of that, uh, a new type of plasma engine, because this engine works in the atmosphere. <clears throat> the trajectory modelling suggests that it uh, can accelerate up to 8 kilometres per second at... Uh, an altitude of about 45 kilometres. That puts it into an orbit with an apogee of 500 kilometres. And then uh, I've, uh, because of my background in advanced propulsion, I've uh, tinkered together a, an idea for a plasma engine that takes over at that point. Uh, it's like the Vasimir, it's not, it looks nothing like a Vasimir engine, but it does have variable specific impulse. And... Uh, given a fusion power supply, uh, it looks as though this vehicle could certainly hack interplanetary flight very easily uh, and very rapidly, um, but also is a candidate now, I think, for interstellar flight, so uh, which is a lot simpler than the original Project Idlus vehicle. Right. So that's where it currently stands. With regard to the, the fusion power supply for it, uh, I, I did a lot of work in magnetic confined fusion and I've also done a lot of work on fission reactors and neither of those would have the power to weight ratio to drive this thing. But there is a sort of uh, little outside runner known as uh, an inertial electrostatic confinement uh, configuration and uh, a guy named Miley has been pushing these for a long time in the States and I think that there is a fighting chance that those could ultimately deliver the power to weight ratio that you're looking for. <clears throat> Unlike magnetic fusion, they've also got the, uh, the prospect, I'm not saying it will be realised, but at least it's a prospect that they could burn uh, fusion fuels which uh, have very low reaction cross-sections. So with, nuclear, with magnetic fusion, deuterium, tritium, uh, are really where you're at. Deuterium and helium-3 may be DD possibly, but you'd never really get to any of the more interesting uh, atoms. But um, it looks as though uh, a fusor, as they're called, uh, could burn uh, uh, protons and beryllium or protons and lithium, um, which uh, would be quite good. Did you have some questions? Yeah, quick I, mean, questions. I, a bit, I suppose one is the... the the design of the Sabre engine originally had this very distinct curve to it. Yes. And now it appears that it doesn't it's have... It's a bit straighter. Yeah, it's straightened. Could you could you talk us through the reason for that change and why it was curved originally? Yeah, so it, it, it's the most common question that gets asked. That curved nacelle has caught everybody's uh, attention. So when you optimise a vehicle like Skylon, the wing is quite important because... A large wing gives you relatively low drag because it flies at low incidence uh, and there's a small induced drag off the wing. But of course, a large wing is heavy. And what matters at the end of the day is what gets into orbit. So it turns out with Skylon that it's got a very small wing and the vehicle flies at about a six degree incidence. So you have to turn the engine nacelles down into the uh, coming uh, airstream. So the nacelle turns down about 60 degree, 6 degrees relative to the fuselage. But of course, when you're outside the atmosphere, the thrust vector has got to go through the line of the centre of gravity of the vehicle. And uh, because the wing is uh, a low wing on Skylon, it means you've got to point the thrust vector up by about 6 degrees, give or take. And so the tail of the nacelle has to point down six degrees and the nose of the nacelle has to point down six degrees. So you finish up with a nacelle with a 12 degree camber. 
as time has ticked on and we moved uh, to a, a rather heavier version of uh, Skylon, everything uh, changed uh, rather subtly. Uh, also some changes in the design of the intake and the current nacelle is much straighter. It's not completely straight. Um, so if uh, you look at the uh, D1 vehicle design, you'll see that it still has a curved nacelle, but it's uh, only about half the camber that uh, the original uh, Skylon C1 had. I, I, I did hear you mention uh, on, a, on, a, on a video from a, a while back <coughs> about how Skylon was going to be, uh, is it still the plan that Skylon is going to be sold more like a, a jetliner around the world so that you would have... Yeah, so that was always the model um, that was put together that... Uh, a lot of projects died on the uh, uh, design board because of uh, traffic models. And it, the traffic model was always that governments would fund and operate vehicles. And if you then look at the traffic model, the, the whole thing sort of runs away into an expensive vehicle and therefore limited uh, traffic. Whereas if you could take the aircraft model, so if we take... Uh, the Boeing 747, for example, Boeing build an aeroplane and they sell it to all the aeroplanes, uh, the, all of the uh, uh, aircraft uh, operators all around the world and leave it to them to make the profit and operate it uh, profitably. And my view was that that should have been the model for Skylon. Now, because of uh, the way that the whole project has evolved, um, whether that is still a possible model, I don't know. Um, attempts to uh, uh, pull investment into that model um, were really not very successful. It's a great shame because the model's completely valid. And uh, I uh, did a huge amount of study over a period of 20 years on that particular model and uh, never found it uh, lacking. But it's like a great many things. I mean, today the world is scared witless with regard to investment and finance and mm. quick returns and so on. It's a legacy from the sort of uh, post-war period, 1980s and so on. And, uh, you know, the domination of our culture with the finance industry. And so unless something is absolutely, why do we keep seeing Batman revisited in the cinemas? Yeah. Um, it's because uh, you can get money to do another Batman film because it's already been proven. Yeah. If you wanted to do Rendezvous with Rama, everybody would be worried about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we just live in that sort of culture now. Uh, I must admit that I'm a bit war-weary of trying to raise funding to do things. I am an engineer, after all. And uh, so I'm stepping back now and letting a, a younger, more dynamic team uh, actually uh, address that. But the, to my mind, that model could still work. Um, but whether you could persuade people to put the money into it, I don't know. It may well be. After all, even the Boeing 747 started out of a requirement for a military uh, program. Mm. And uh, it could be argued that uh, Boeing was the winner of that program. Of course, they didn't get the contract. And as a result, they sold their design all around the world. I, I don't know how many hundreds or even thousands of 747s have now been sold. It's one of those difficulties of uh, the way in which economics works these days. Mm -hmm. So it may well be that a friendly government or governments somewhere will have to stump up the development uh, cost to have it. But it may then be uh, ultimately saleable. Yeah, I mean, um, if you look at something like SLS, it, <coughs> the cost of that has, has just mushroomed, doesn't it? And it's it it has, but um, people have got confidence. They know rockets work, <laughs> um, whereas at the present time they don't know that Skylons work. Yeah, and so almost certainly there will be a development program that involves flight test vehicles and so on, mm. in order to gradually get the confidence that uh, mm. this is a route forward. Does that mean that the LATCAP will will come back as a as a concept or be developed? So, um, the LATCAP was very interesting. The LAPCAT application is more demanding than the Skylon application. So for an engine in the civil aviation world today, you know, you're, you're looking at lifetimes of uh, uh, 10, 20,000 hours, whereas the lifetime of an engine on Skylon is 50 hours. 
And so going from that 50 hours up to a pre-cooler that wouldn't need maintenance in, say, 18,000 hours is quite a difficult step to make. Um, but I think that um, perhaps we were perhaps we were a bit ahead of the game with it all, but it had to start somewhere. Mm. And I think that we'll probably see a decade, a decade and a half of gradually sort of sneaking up on the goal. Mm. Um, when we know that the goal's achievable, mm. I think it will rapidly... Uh, the lap cap thing was, was huge, wasn't it? I mean, it was more or twice as long as, as Skylar. So this is a consequence of the low density of hydrogen. And uh, so although the lap cap vehicle was, uh, as you say, 132 metres in length, um, it only weighed 400 tonnes, which is uh, lower than a uh, uh, an Airbus, for example. Um, a lot of aircraft these days are topping the 400 tonne mark. And because it had a sensible wing area, unlike Skylon, it only operated at the same sort of takeoff speeds as Concorde. And in fact, Krista Rollerbar, who sadly is no longer with us, um, a, a well-known Concorde pilot, uh, he was a, a very good friend of uh, reaction engines and he gave us a lot of advice on the design of the uh, A2 vehicle. Uh, we found that we could meet most of those requirements, including extremely good subsonic range, uh, which Concorde never could do, of course. Um, the, in fact, the subsonic range on the uh, Lapcat A2 is very close to its uh, Mach 5 range. So it could still get to its destination in the event you had an engine failure and had to drop to subsonic conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, do you, what do you make of things like the, uh, the, these new space barons, the, the, the people like Elon Musk and the Jeff Bezos's? Could, could, so, <clears throat> what would, what's their part to play in, in kind of... So Elon, Elon Musk is my hero, essentially, um, because, uh, I mean, he has had the financial clout, which I never had, um, to sort of take a concept and essentially do it. And quite frankly, there's no reason why the industries couldn't have done this 30 years ago. Mm. Um, Elon Musk has been in a position to take them on. Um, I've never been able to, to make Musk's economics work. Um, mm. I do understand the technology and I've analysed his vehicles. Uh, I would never go for a retro lob personally. I think that's an extremely risky scenario. And uh, uh, I know enough about rocket engines, I'd never risk my life on having to relight one. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, nonetheless, it's the route that he's chosen. In engineering, there frequently are no optimum routes. There's a route that you choose, and then you know, uh, through uh, sweat and tears, you make it work. Mm. And I think uh, Musk is in that situation with the... Uh, uh, Falcon 9 Heavy, uh, well, Falcon 9 and Falcon 9 Heavy. And I, I think he's got a good combination. Uh, I'm less convinced about his big Falcon rocket, if we're being uh, polite. <laughs> um, and uh, likewise, um, I believe that uh, Mars um, is far too important a scientific object uh, to go trampling around all over it with... Uh, early colonists who are almost certainly going to die anyway. Um, I, I don't see what the uh, objective of that is mm. when we need to understand an awful lot about how the solar system formed. Because every time we come up with a neat idea, we always find something that tips it on its head. And, you know, the water on Earth doesn't look as though it arrived from comets after all. I personally never thought it did, but... Mm. Uh, um, it's been a very, very uh, strong theory, which is now sort of turned upside down. We need to uh, examine Mars in a great deal of detail before we go mucking the place up with a lot of human uh, contamination in order to understand much more about the formation of the solar system. Once we've done all that, um, fine. But the same is true of the moon to a certain uh, degree. There's also a lot of... Uh, scientific stuff that we could do of genuine value from the moon. Radio astronomers have long wanted a radio telescope on the uh, opposite side of the moon mm. to shield them from all the radio background noise coming from the Earth. So one can see genuine scientific objectives that could be achieved by having sizable colonies on the moon. Um, but I don't see, at this point in time, similar objectives uh, in Musk's race to Mars. I think that that's 
that's much more of an ego trip than yeah. a space trip. But, what are, uh, what's your feeling on something like the Chinese? Because obviously the Chinese are moving quite steadily towards it. Uh, <clears throat> every time I make a pred- predictions about what I think the Chinese are going to do, they, they don't. So <clears throat> I think the Chinese and the Indians have got uh, long-term ambitions. They've got good, steady programs that are leading inexorably in that direction. Um, in many respects, um, I think they might be the uh, tortoise that you know, overtakes the American hare, ultimately. Uh, the Americans have obviously been outstanding in the sort of Apollo flags and footprints sort of mission. I think now that it's come down to defining more serious uh, missions in space, uh, that NASA is not really uh, stepping up to the mark very well. And uh, I think one would like to see a bit more solid, deep-down thinking from NASA. Uh, Right now, you can't help feeling that we've committed to the SLS, uh, SLS, what are we going to do with it? Mm. And, you know, this week's mission option is, and what's it going to be next time? And, uh, of course, the other sort of big unknown factor in that at the moment is President Trump. And, mm. uh, I mean, anybody that can predict what he's going to do next is uh, is doing very well. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, one last question, I think, actually. <laughs> it's just, uh, it was, it was, uh, was just something that I that you said um, I've seen you say is um, how Britain really has an opportunity, an opportunity in rocketry in in terms of this, you know, getting up into low Earth orbit because we we're not invested in our own rocket industry. Can you elaborate on that point? So one of one of the uh, things that I get a little bit tired of hearing of in Britain, we've got politicians and all kinds of civil servants jumping up and down saying, oh, we. We want transformational technology or paradigm shift and uh, game changing and uh, lots of other exciting phrases. When, exactly. <laughs> when you say, hang on, here it is, they go, ah, uh, didn't yeah. really mean that. Um, because, <laughs> didn't mean actual change. Yeah, <laughs> what, what they realise is that if you bring in you know, a paradigm shift, there are going to be casualties out of that. Now, you're quite right, and I've I've held this view for a very long time, that uh, um, although it didn't seem like it at the time, uh, Clark's sort of assassination of all uh, space transport technology in this country actually left us with a completely clean sheet of paper. You're absolutely right in that, um, in principle, we could go ahead and do a reusable space transportation with absolutely no casualties at all, and only winners with regard to the propulsion people like Rolls-Royce, uh, the airframers like Airbus and uh, uh, BAE Systems, um, all of the sort of electronic kit that uh, goes into running such a vehicle, even the establishment of the spaceports, and of course the uh, massive liquid hydrogen supply facilities that would be required. So for half of my lifetime, people have been sort of uh, having rose-tinted visions of uh, a future hydrogen economy. And yet, how is this going to start? Because changing from kerosene is going to be very expensive. Well, Skyon only operates on hydrogen. It has to have the hydrogen. It's a project that could shoulder the initial costs of getting into a hydrogen economy which, like every other sort of large aerospace project, eventually spins that technology out into the wider world. And so I feel that Britain is absolutely the nation that is ideally placed to pull that off. But sadly, um, I think all of us in recent years have come to recognise that uh, there is no such thing as vision in uh, government. I wouldn't say that about the UK Space Agency. So if I step back in time to the old BNSC, I mean, that was an absolutely blinkered uh, organisation. The current UK Space Agency is not. The current UK Space Agency is uh, labouring against the uh, uh, problems of the uh, lack of visionaries that we have in government, like all the rest of us. Mm. Um, I mean... 
obviously uh, uh, Lord Drayson set it up and David Willis uh, Willis uh, really you know drove that but unfortunately since uh, Willis went uh, I don't feel that it has a champion anymore and uh, it's not it's not progressing in my view the way that it should but even if it did it's still got this uh, uphill task of convincing government that uh, um, I, I use the word government as a uh, as though we had a joined up organisation. We don't, of course. Yeah. The government is a very uh, disconnected uh, entity with different departments having to support uh, different things. But I do feel that um, if if somebody could pull that together and push it forward, then it would happen. You know that there is the roadmap. One of the things that uh, uh, Lord Drayson and David Willits, uh, well, he's Lord Willits now, of course, um, brought to the fore is that through the whole of the recession years, space was one area that continued to expand, in some instances, in double-digit figures. uh, And it experienced no recession at all. And the idea that um, we would have 10% of the uh, uh, space industry of the planet uh, by the 2030 is a, is a really exciting vision but unless some of the I, I won't use names but I despair uh, of the people we have on the top shelf and uh, they uh, I don't think that they have any kind of vision at all uh, in, in a much broader sense than just space so Matt I just oh, I'm kind of speechless <laughs> it's just it's just gold nugget after gold nugget yeah, he, with him, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he, he genuinely is the absolute legendary. Love it. Excellent work. Yeah, that just leaves us with a space fact to do, Jamie. What, what we got? So uh, it's another, I don't know where this one comes from either, but it, it, it's, kind of, oh. it's kind of true. Every year, everybody on Earth collectively experiences more years than Earth has existed. Ooh. You see? Wow, okay. Yeah, well, you know, there's 7 billion of us, and we all went through yeah. a year, which means there's 7 billion years of collective experience, which is longer than the Earth has been around for. And the Earth is what, Matt? Four point... Something like that. Just a... Something? Yeah, just under 5 billion or something. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, pretty cool, out. That is pretty cool. I did promise the big shout-out to our Skylon patrons, uh... Let's do Let's this. Let's do it. So we have, and this is just so great to see such a long list of Skylon patrons. These, these are the big boys. We have Mr. Dr. Bob Hodges. D-B-H. D-B- yes, Bob. <laughs> yes, Bob. Jeffrey Marlam. Go on, Jeff. John Wilson Benack. Oh, big John. Thank you. Justin Roberts. Justin, you are a fine man. Matt Gilliland. Matt? You're all right. Oh, thanks. Stick oh, around. Oh, no, that Matt. Dar- no, not you. <laughs> Darren Fuchs. Darren, I want to be your mate. He is your mate, Jamie. Richard Swain. Oh, the Swainster. Come on. Carell Sim. Carell, you are now elevated to legend status. Erin Edwards. Erin, come at me in a good way. And the one... And the only Julio Prayer. Julio, thank you. Everyone, thank you. And Matt, if you want to join that list, how does one go about it? Interplanetary.org.uk. Just join. Just help us. And I have to just, say, just help us out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna absolutely make no bones about this. Without the help of the patrons. I definitely would not have been able to go out to French Guiana and no, and, you and, and do that trip. There was flights to Paris, there was yellow fever vaccinations, all that, and that was all the patron money helped towards those costs. And that is why we absolutely love you. And, of course, that's why I'm very, very keen to give the best space report I possibly can on that particular trip because that was paid for by our patrons and... I love you. Absolutely. You guys made that happen. You continue to make the show happen. So thank you ever so much. Tell a friend. Tell your mum. Leave a review on iTunes. You know what? We will support you back 
We promise. Absolutely. So, Jamie and everyone else, That's it. you have been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting, putting the, the A's, A's back into, into space. space. Come on, England. Bye-bye, space podcasts. Meat, pie, sausage roll. Come on, England, score a goal. Bye. See you.